Mr. Harlan Ellison. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm coming to you tonight live from the underground glitter palace high atop the Moshe Dalak uh, Hotel here in Upper Los Angeles, bringing you the music of Ramon Rivera and his snappy dappy teeny bopper orchestra featuring Ursula Le Guin on lute. We will begin in mass invasion. Tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you get me so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It will make a duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that we will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Good morning, everybody, unless it's evening, in which case, good evening. Got that felt weird? Let's do that again. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another recording from the Area 51 recording studios of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We are the only podcast to guarantee to retain carbon neutrality for the rest of this fiscal year. We did sign that one, didn't we, Cam? Yeah, we did. It, okay. In blood. Good. Good, good. Yeah, that's last week's podcast where we signed it in blood and then, nah, never mind. And become all electric before the end of 2023. I am your vaccinated host, The Dome. This is episode 531. 531? Yeah, it is. And um, we've got an interesting show tonight. How interesting? Stay tuned and find out. It's another mask-mandated episode, fully quarantined evening here in Area 51. And this episode, we're writing another novel, but it's another novel based on another series of novels based on an old author that I really liked with a new guy we've never met before that we're bringing in for the first time who's been around for an awfully long time but never been on the show before. Why? I don't know. I'm talking in circles. Nobody knows why. Joining me tonight... At the Soylent Green Gummy Bear Snack Pack Shack, it's Captain Cam. Hey, man, how are you? I'm doing good here, you know. I had uh, definitely looking forward to uh, talking about all things, you know. You know, in fact, today's book really got me back into that whole cooking mode. I think we'll understand shortly why. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, get that. So, you know, yeah, so, it, was, you know, I'm, it was kind of a cookbook book. It was. Cookbook it was. Book, cooking book. Book. So Kirk. what I've decided is that once we yes. bring our, 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 our refined author on here, I want to talk with him about doing, maybe when we come off the air, a companion cookbook where I'm just going to, because I'm right now working with all the ingredients that they, they've mentioned in the book, and I am I am willing to, I think I've got all the recipes perfected, and then we can you know, just propose, you know, a companion cookbook, you know. A companion, what do you think? Okay. That no, that's just dumb. So we're not even what? gonna bring that up. But our guest tonight is is an author who I've wanted to talk to because uh he's writing in a universe that I really like. Uh it's a universe that was started by one of the great writers, uh one of the great masters, grandmasters, uh the late Jack Vance. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Hughes. Matthew, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. I'm very glad to be here. Okay, you may regret that in time, but for the moment, I will okay, accept that. I'm temporarily that. glad to be here. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, the book that you, you, you're bringing to us tonight is a book called Barbarians of the, of the Beyond. And that book is written in the Demon Prince's universe. And it's part of the authorized Jack Vance Demon Prince's universe. What does that mean? Well, okay. Uh, Jack has been gone for nine years now. And his son, John, set up a, uh, a press called Spatterlight, Spatterlight Press. And mostly it's to produce authorized, perfect uh, uh, edited versions of Jack Vance's work. The, the originals, not the ones that editors messed around with to fit space in some uh, magazine. But beyond that, he's also set up a publishing series called Paladins of Vance. And Paladins of Vance are other authors whom he authorizes to write in Vance space. So in the settings, the milieus, the universes, whatever, that Jack Vance created. Not the same characters. You can't take Kurth Gerson from the Demon Princes and run him through a, another series of mazes. But the world that Vance created and, and the, the universe and the civilization and the non-civilization outside the civilization, all of that is fair game. And that's what Barbarians of the Beyond is all about. So I think so, that answers one of my big questions is that you you are allowed to play in the, play in the sandbox just as long as you don't touch the characters that have already had a story arc. As long as you're not dealing with named characters or named places that have had a story arc, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Places you are, I can do. Places oh, can are do places. a fair game. Oh, uh, and characters, we, I can't do main characters, but there is one character in uh, Barbarians of the Beyond who's directly borrowed from uh, the Demon Princes, which is what we're talking about. Okay, so the real question I have to ask is, number one, what is the relationship between you and the history of Jack Vance that would get you so involved in this universe? Well, uh, and that's got to be a long story. Yeah, that I'm, I'm going. Did you read the Songs of the Dying Earth anthology? I read some of it. I can't say I read all of it. I was in that one. And they asked that of every author. What did Jack Vance mean to you? And to me, I go back, I think, to 1962 to Galaxy magazine, which my eldest brother had a subscription to. And there was a story in there called The Dragon Masters. And it oh. absolutely oh, knocked yeah. me down and stuck with me forever. And when I got old enough to be able to go to bookstores and had a school library and so on, I started, uh, I have to say, when we were young, when I was young, we were very poor and often living in rural settings, rented farmhouses where there was no way to get books anywhere. Uh, but once I could get my hands on books, anything I found of Jack Vance, I read. Uh, and 
right now I'm I'm 73 years of age. I pretty well stopped reading science fiction and fantasy somewhere back in the 80s, except Jack Vance, anything by him. And I reread things by him regularly, and I very rarely reread other authors. But Vance, uh, he resonates with me. He, he strikes some kind of chord inside me that uh, I, I'm not really, I should be able to express this because I'm a damned author, but he just is real to me the way many other authors are not. So there was, there was a, there was a, from a very early point in time in your life, a, a resonance between you and the writings of Vance that kind of yeah. grew as you grew. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and, is, and when you started writing, did was was his writing uh, kind of overlaid on yours? Did you did did you start writing as a result of his writing, or what? No, I always wrote. Um, I, I've made my living as a a writer for fifty odd years now. Um, I was originally a journalist and then a speechwriter. And finally, when my kids were grown and I could just do what I wanted, I began writing fiction. Um, and when I started writing fiction, a lot of the fiction I wrote had a Jack Vance influence. Uh, he's drawn to anti-heroes and so am I. My heroes are not very heroic. Um, and there is a an ineffable mood of world weariness and anti-hero-ness, that kind of universe uh, that permeates his work and that just sinks into me and I feel right at home when I'm reading it and I'm right at home when I'm writing it. So when, when it came about that the world opened up for the demon prince prince's universe to to become opened for authors like you to well, be that, able to... actually it goes back beyond before that oh, okay um, uh, i got recognized many years ago now as a kind of uh heir apparent to Vance. In fact, Booklist called me that in a review and other people began to notice. And that's why I got invited into uh, Songs of a Dying Earth, even though mm -hmm. I was a very hardly known at all author. Uh, Gardner Dozois and George R. R. Martin had seen mm -hmm. some of my stuff and said, that guy writes like Vance, get him in here. So that's I've read those reviews. Yeah. yeah, they're killer reviews. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I, you know, I accepted that. I, I dedicated my first novel, Fool's Errant. I dedicated that to to Jack Vance. Sent him a copy. Got a nice letter back from Norma, his wife. Um, and then uh, I was in touch with John early on. Uh, well, not that early on, years before. But um, at one point, it suddenly dawned on me what I would really like to do would be to write a sequel to. Uh, one of his books. And when I thought about it, the one I wanted to write a sequel to was The Dragon Masters that I had read when I was 13 and had reread 
a number of times since and thought was just a, a perfect little pearl of science fiction writing. So I got in touch with John and I said, how would your dad feel about me writing a sequel to the Dragon Masters? And he went and talked to his dad and got back to me and said, well, he's amenable to that. So I started putting together the idea in my head and I got in touch with uh, Vance's agent at the time uh, because, you know, we, that could be really helpful in selling the book. Sure. Um, <laughs> but then the day before my birthday in 2013, Jack died. And John was grieving and did not want to be doing anything like that. And I thought that's perfectly natural. I my you know, my father had died when I was much younger than John was, but uh, I know the feeling. It just uh, pulls the rug out from under you. Because something you didn't realize was always a rock you were standing on suddenly disappears. Anyway, so the idea just went away. But then uh, time passed. It must have been seven years. So we're up to like 2020. Um, and I hear from John and he says, I've got this thing called Paladins of Vance. And I remember you wanted to do a sequel to the Dragon Masters. But somebody else wants to do that sequel. But would you like to do something in the Paladins universe? And I thought right away, uh, I'd read a lot more Vance since 1962. And I thought the Demon Princes, I'd like to do that. I'd like to do something in that big space opera universe. Because Dragon Masters takes place on one world and right. in one little region of one world. It's basically in two valleys. Uh, but the Demon Princes, you go from world to world and the spaceships and all kinds of stuff. And he said, OK. And I started thinking up uh, an idea. And I, I realized from the rules, you can't use Kurth Gerson, the the hero of uh, anti-hero, if you want to call him that, uh, of the Demon Princes. But the world is there. And the Demon Princes begins with uh, a whole community of 5,000 people on a little world out in the wild beyond, beyond civilization space, uh, being just taken up by pirates and hauled away and never heard from again. Uh, Gerson spends five books tracking down each one of those five demon princes, the master criminals, and, and de dealing with them. I won't do any spoilers. Um, but there's absolutely nothing in the Demon Princes that says, well, what happened to that world after all the people were taken away? What happened to the people who were taken away? So that was my uh, my fertile ground to start plowing up, and I, I started plowing it up. And what an intriguing story it is mm. that you put together. Um, what made you decide that this is where you wanted to go, that this is the first place. Well, first of all, is this the first place you're going or are there other books that you're going along the way? You mean, am I going to write more Vance books? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I wouldn't mind. Um, it'd be nice if this one did very well because <laughs> that would be helpful. Um, there's a series of books that Vance did 
each one on a different planet in a cluster of stars called the Alastor cluster. And each one of those is entirely separate. The only thing really that holds them together is this one character who's kind of the secret uh, traveling incognito ruler of the Alastor worlds. Uh, but each story is different with a different character in a different situation on a different world. And I would really be interested in thinking up another Alastor world and then a story set on it. So I, right now I've got other things to do, but uh, I, I am thinking down the road to some point, I want to talk to John and say, why don't we do another one? And I think if this one really succeeds, it would be uh, an easy conversation. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Barbarians of the Beyond. Um, okay. Let's start with the title, because that okay. does not um, it, it sounds like a cheesy title. It but does, but it is, isn't. Uh, well, no, okay. the fact is, in his early years, Jack had a, a story called Vandals of the Void, and I thought I'll borrow that and make it Barbarians of the Beyond, because <laughs> it has a ring to it. Yeah, there's a certain alliteration to it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the the story itself is is a a is the story of a woman, Morwen yes. Sabine. And usually, and, usually Jack did not write uh, female heroine like main characters who were female. No, well, and, I wanted, and, and I this is to do that. an incredibly be... strong female character. Well, she and, has to be. And, well, she absolutely has to be to yeah. go through. Uh, you you walk this female character through a life of of. Hmm. Okay, I've got to tap dance through this because we don't want to give away spoilers, no. and I'm not going to give away spoilers. But she starts. She starts the book escaping from a life of slavery. Yes. And that's where the story begins. Yes. Well, she's been escaped for about a year, but it's taken her that long working as a, a hired hand on uh, space freighters. That's another Vancean kind of thing. Um, it's taken her a year to get to the planet that her parents were stolen away from when the big raid happened with the five demon princes. So she's come back to where the demon princes started. And she's come back with a fully formed plan in her head. She's been trained to do it since she was a little girl. Of what needs to happen mm -hmm. for the rest of her life to be completed. Well, she has... Uh, a definite goal, and the goal is that she has escaped from this pirate who has a compound on a planet far distance into the beyond where there is no law to speak of. Her parents are there. They are servants in that pirate's house. And just before they, uh, they were stolen away from Mount Pleasant, which is the name of the town that uh, was raided, uh, they'd only been there a little while, and they'd brought with them something that uh, was very, very valuable that they couldn't show anybody uh, for reasons that become clear in the book, and they hid it. And then they got snaffled off by pirates, slavers, 
and that thing ought to still be there. And if she can find it, maybe she can sell it for enough to buy her parents out of bondage and they'll be happy and reunited and everything will be great. That's the, the basic uh, motivation of the main character. Save my parents. And within that, within that storyline, there is such, and this is where your attention to detail as a storyteller absolutely shines, such attention to detail, such marvelous and wonderful detail. Well, yeah, that's that's the trick. I mean, the way you make characters and situations and settings come alive is to pick the, the very necessary details and leave out only other ones. Like Elmore Leonard said, leave out the parts people tend to skip over. <laughs> yeah. It's when when I first started reading the book, um, I was ill prepared for the level of detail you were going you were throwing at me. Mm. And I don't know whether it was because I was a lazy reader or I had been um I had been given too many lazy writers to read lately, but I'm sitting there and I'm going, why am I being told all this? Why is this happening? And then the more I got into the book, the more I realized that's why this is important. <clears throat> and I came to realize by the second and the third chapter that's why this is here. That's why this is there. That's why this is here. Um, and a, a point at which uh, the title Mount Pleasant, realizing how unpleasant the town was. Uh, <laughs> well, things had changed. Yeah. Well, I mean, things, after, yeah, after, absolutely. After the raid, after the raid, the town stood empty for years. It was a ghost town. Uh, there were like two or three people who didn't get taken because they were out of town when it happened and then there they are and this place is empty but then and there's uh, a whole group... scene where they come back to town and they come back and there's this these two people come back on, on a truck and they load up all these pieces of bodies and you spent um, just enough time to hmm. describe it in enough detail to where it was very uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, I did that very succinctly, I think, I remember. Yes, um, you did. Yes. You have an advantage over me in this. I haven't read that book since I wrote it, and that was like three years ago. So <laughs> things fade away from my memory. Yeah. My point being that there's, there's an attention to detail in the writing mm. that we don't see a lot of. Well, that, I'm, I'm a, you know, that thing of show, don't tell. I don't tell much about my characters or, or my settings. I show you them in precise little details that allow your power of confabulation to make a gestalt, to make a, a whole picture out of the little scraps that I'm showing you. That That's the trick. Your characters, too, tend to reveal themselves at a very 
precise pace. They well, never the let on. Yeah, the characters in this book, especially, um, nobody is quite what they seem on first glance. As the story moves forward, I peel back a little from each character and they start off pretty much as stereotypes, but then they they take on some some real depth, I think. Yeah, Juris Thander, for example, uh, in the beginning of the book, by the middle of the book is not what you thought he was. By the end of the book, for sure, is not what you thought he was. Um, well, Morwen uh, is is a great example, uh, I think, of, of uh, character growth as well. I mean, we should tell people that Morwen is the heroine of the book. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we probably should. Yeah. <laughs> it's her story. Yeah, it is her story. This 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 is the story of her and her family and her growth uh, over the course of. How long does this story take goes for about a year? Well, she's been out of the uh, the pirates grasp for a year when this when the book starts. And then uh, it takes her a while to work her way into the new society that's taken over in Mount Pleasant. That's true. Become, yeah. uh, and then she gets further in and different things happen. But I would say the, the span of the book from when we meet her getting off that freighter to where she's finally wrapped up everything, you may be looking at a year and a half. And there's there's quite a lot of development that she goes through over the course of that year. Yes. Significant. Uh, um, she, she has to uh, respond and grow into situations that she was not trained for. Her parents trained her to do certain things in order to she'd be the one that would get away and then come back and buy them out. But uh, things do not work out the way they might have done simply. And she has to adapt and grow and change. And it turns out that she has uh, talents and abilities that make her useful to other people and give her opportunities. And thus we get the kind of book we get. The amazing thing uh, from from the standpoint of the reader is that there is growth within her that we watch develop, that we see as she sees it. Yeah, it just it doesn't pop up as a big surprise to everybody. We see the growth develop within her. And that, again, is uh, the mark of uh, what I think is just just really superior writing uh, on on your part that I really, really, well, really uh, enjoy. For those who are listening who are interested in being writers. Uh, writing genre fiction. The technique is called third person close or third person limited. Uh, you have everything is experienced through the uh, the sensorium, the experience of the character, the point of view character, which in this case is Morwen. So I'm not standing outside and telling the reader who she is. I'm showing the reader who she is, how she feels, how she reacts, all from within her own senses, including her sense of self. It, it's, it, it's a very difficult technique to to master as a writer. And, well, and once, to, once you've done it a couple of dozen times. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's 
it's difficult to, to from from the standpoint of a reader, it's difficult to sit there and read and go, yeah, I get that, uh, and and just you know not not sit there and go, eh, I don't buy that, because mm. in order to buy it, it's got to be very well written, and this is. Uh, well, I, I have an advantage. I spent 30 years as a speechwriter. And in order to be a speechwriter, writing for dozens of different people because I was a freelancer, um, in order to be a speechwriter, you have to take into your head and your yourself uh, the worldview of the person you're writing for and then write it in that person's voice. So I was always having to become, you know, some senior politician or uh, a union leader or the CEO of a big corporation and feel the world the way they felt it in order to be able to write a speech that would really work for them. And that's same way is that's how I do my characters. I, I become my characters as I'm writing them. And I feel them inside me. It's all my unconscious is, well, my unconscious is doing all the work and I'm doing the editing. That's how it works. So I'm not a master of technique. I have no training at all in this. Um, I just do what feels right to me. And I think Jack Vance was very much the same way. He was like many authors of his time. Uh, he didn't take courses. He didn't get a, a master of fine arts and creative writing. He read a lot of books and he felt them. And then he made characters and felt them. That's how you do it. Yeah, but I mean, okay, fine. That's how you do it. And that's very easy to say. But some people can do that over and over and over again and still not get it right. And you and yeah, I both well, know that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, some people can do advertising jingles and some can be Beethoven and write great big symphonies. Exactly. There's a spectrum and, and you fall on it somewhere. Yeah. I, I was reading... Um, a review of the book, uh, which is kind of a cheat because it's somebody else's idea of your idea. Uh, and it was uh, a review that was written by uh, Peter Heck at uh, Asimov Science Fiction oh, yeah. Magazine. Yeah, he, which, he likes my stuff. He's a very Vance kind of guy. So yeah. I, I think he likes your stuff a lot. Um, in, in the review of uh, Barbarians of the Beyond, and I just want to grab a... Uh, quick quote from it he wrote uh hughes puts together a complex plot full of shady characters and exotic settings worthy of vance himself little touches the cuisine of distance wor distant worlds the names of ordinary things the dance music of a far-flung culture are all reminiscent of vance's characteristic world building see those are the touches i was talking about mm. those little touches that make all the difference in the world when you're putting these stories together. And that makes, <clears throat> that makes all the difference in, in, in the, the ruffles and flourishes that we've got in this book. Um, and, and there are some deliberate Easter eggs in there for, for Vansophiles, you know, and, and uh, more ones in the, uh, the office of the, the big bad guy. And there's a, bookcase there left over from the previous owner and in there is a slim uh 
I think it was done in mauve le leather, a volume of poetry by somebody called Navarth. Now, Navarth was one of Jack Vance's great favorite characters in The Demon Princes. Um, he doesn't appear in this story at all, but his book is there. And, and uh, any Vance, uh, Vance fans... Any Vance file would know that, sure. Yeah, and, and it's a little fill-up for them to say, oh, yeah, hey, cool. You know, that's it. By the same token, you know, as you're, as you you've given our, your main character Morwen, the 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 job of being a chef. Yes. And as you've put her in. Oh no, no, a cook. A cook. Her dad is a chef. She's a cook. Yeah. And you've set her set her upon the task of working in a tavern. And we watch her over the Restaurant. course of time. In a, in a cafe. We watch her cook meals. And yeah. you describe them in, in excruciating fine detail. Well, okay. Um, I like to cook. Um, I've been married now 50-odd years. And originally, my wife was the traditional wife who did the cooking and that was fine because I came from uh, an English working class background where you simply boil everything to death and, <laughs> you know, separate it on the plate and say, well, that must be different. But it's a different color, but it all tastes the same. Um, so she did the cooking and I did the eating. And then she got a, a flu, a virus of some kind. And it for several days, she couldn't taste or smell anything. And afterwards, she couldn't taste fine differences. So she would put way too much or way too little stuff in, in whatever we were doing, eating. So I started doing it, and I turned out to have a talent for flavor. I, I know how things are going to taste if I mix this ingredient and that even before. I've done it. I can feel it in my, my mind. Um, so I took over the cooking most of it. And there's a test that she has to take when the cops say, you know, when they're trying to find out if she's actually a, a police spy from the uh, civilized part of the world. Um, and they take her into the, the restaurant kitchen and say, you know, here's some stuff, make something out of it. Well, that's autobiographical um, in the, to the extent that I was in Ireland house sitting and it was time for dinner, and all I had was some leeks and a leftover leg of lamb and some uh, ready-made pastry from the store. So I chopped up the leeks and I chopped up the lamb and I called it a lamb and leek pie, put in some uh, some thyme and garlic. It was wonderful. The taste blended just perfectly together. I recommend it to anybody. If you want a simple meal, use uh, old lamb, like you know, leftover lamb, finely chopped leeks, some thyme and some garlic salt and pepper put it in a pie you get a wonderful meal anyway so you know autobiographical use in uh, <laughs> fiction is not unheard of and matt i wasn't entirely joking earlier on when i, when I was well i was joking early on but there was a, a little piece of fact is i do cook as well myself mm -hmm. um uh, and when you were writing that i'm looking at this going okay so what is this? Because I'm, I'm, I really was trying to figure out. Okay, because I've seen other cookbooks where they take other science fiction settings and they say, well, you know, 
um, you know, it, uh, a wampa meal from Star Wars, what would it be? You know, if you cooked a wampa, what would it be? It's an Earth equivalent. And I'm looking at what you cooked there, and I can't say as I came up with sheep, but I was, but I, I think I came pretty close on what the vegetables were and what the herbs were. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it was just, it was fun for that moment to read along and try to figure out, well, what are the earth equivalents? Because one of the animals you have there is a hopper, which to me, to correct me if I'm wrong, sounds awfully a lot like a rabbit to me. A very big, very ugly rabbit, but a rabbit. It might have been a rabbit. I, I don't know. Um, oh, okay. I, I don't do backstory on these things. It might have been a rabbit. It might have been uh, some kind of kangaroo. That's a possibility, uh, too. Because... Actually, that's more likely than rabbit because it was a herbivore that turned carnivore once it got moved yeah. to a different planet. And they used to be carnivorous uh, kangaroos. The Aborigines got rid of them all, but uh, they are found in the fossil record in Australia. So could be that. It could doesn't that, really yeah. matter. What What's important with a thing like that is what it does in the story rather than you know how it came to be. I'm a great believer that characters, especially, are what they do. And and I often don't describe them very much and sometimes not even at all, uh, because what they do and say is much more important than how they appear, at least to me. No, I would tend to agree. This is... uh... one of the more interesting books I've read in a long time, uh, only for the reason that it's a throwback, but it isn't. Oh, it's old-fashioned space opera. There's no doubt about that. I make no bones about it. I don't read modern science fiction and wouldn't know what to do with it if I was trying to write it, but I do know how to write... (laughs) I know how to do 1950s-style science fiction, although with more nuanced characters, shall we say. And that's what I'm doing there. This is 50s and 60s space opera. Yeah, but that's not, but that's not all you do. I mean, it's well, it's well done space opera, but it's very well done space opera. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's, that's a lost art for, for a lot of people these days. And there's, again, I don't know, because I'm not current in the field at all. So. Well, how dare you be not current? Quite a bit because, (laughs) um, you know, I've made, I think, 42 sales to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction over the years, which is more than most people do. Um, And yet I'm totally a dinosaur, a fossil. But there's there's still a market that tells me there is still a market for the kind of stuff that I write because people... People tell me, you know, if I see your name on the cover of the magazine, I buy it because I want more of that stuff. You know, you know how it is with us old guys. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we we, we got to keep keep pushing the envelope here and reminding people how important it is that us old guys keep doing stuff. Yeah, and it's important too not to forget the old guys who are gone now but i think everybody ought to read jack vance i I think he is he's in many ways he is a a man of his time but he's also timeless i mean those stories are timeless 
Um, I was asked just the other day on a, a website to recommend one of his, and I recommended the little short novel, Emphirio, which is classic Vance and mythic, even though it's simple, it has mythic depth to it. And it's short, which is, you know, some people like that. Um, but that book, I, I have no doubt, will continue to be read decades from now, and it's decades since he wrote it, because it just stands there and it's timeless. It's important that we, we remember that science fiction has a beginning, hmm. that it didn't just happen. It's not just now that where you are, Matt, right now started with Jack Vance, where I began my journey with science fiction started with Arthur C. Clarke yep. and Bob Heinlein and 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 Philip Jose Farmer and those people yep. and Philip K. Dick. And, you know, there, there, there are names that we don't hear much anymore and well, we need to. Yeah. Cliff Simak, for example. Oh, my goodness. Wonderful. Of course. Writer. You don't hear about him. <laughs> Um, oh, dear. <laughs> oh, you know who I'm going to give a shout out to? Please. And everybody, everybody should read this. C.M. Kornbluth. Uh, he wrote such wonderful, funny and dagger sharp satire of societies back in the, the 50s, into the 60s. Um, and he ought to be read still by everybody because uh, the world demands a certain amount of cynicism and the ability to laugh at it at the same time. These that, days more than ever, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, I think sometimes we are living in a, a universe put together by a combination of Philip K. Dick and Ron Goulart together. Oh, thank God somebody else besides me remembers Ron Goulart. Uh, he, I would say he's an also a, a quiet influence on me. I, I, I note touches of him in some of my characters and the situations. Um, the simple fact that things don't work the way they're supposed to, you know, that's that's the basis of a Ron Goulart story. And the then one you thing, have, to, have to find ways to laugh at it. The one thing I always loved about Ron Goulart is you got to the last five pages of the book and you went, there's no way he could ever wrap this up in five pages. <laughs> and he always did. <laughs> and there's no way I could wrap this up, but somehow, Matt, we have to. And I can't thank you enough for joining us tonight okay. to talk about this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book that I have just enjoyed the hell out of. Um, what can I say? Uh, we can go out and buy it. I mean, well, yeah, good. yeah. You guys, go out and buy this book, uh, Barbarians of the Beyond. We'll have links in the show notes where to go find it, where to go buy it. Um, 
links to Jack Vance, links to the website. Guys, um, take the time and do it. It's more fun than a barrel of elephant. Uh, somebody's <laughs> some, phone is ringing. You might have to edit this part out. Ah, uh, I can't do anything. It's just the phone in the house where I'm house sitting in, in British Columbia. Not a problem. I'm not going to worry about a phone. Okay. Everybody has a phone. Yeah. But the bottom line is, Matt Hughes has been our guest tonight. Matt, uh, when you've got something new coming in, let us know. Come by. It's been a pleasure talking to you tonight. Thank you for joining us on Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Well, you're very welcome. I had a great time. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you could find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watt sauce. We have. We love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. You can find Lawrence Made Me Cry's music on Bandcamp. And a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying, Terry and Jeannie shared pain as lessons, shared joy increased. Thus, do we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody. That sounds good. That sounds perfect.